This morning, I'm going to have you take your Bible and open to the book of Revelation, Revelation chapter 2. And let me read the first five verses of that chapter. Revelation chapter 2, starting in verse 1. To the angel of the church at Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand and the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men. And you put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false. You have perseverance and have endured for uh, my name's sake and have not grown weary. But I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Remember, therefore, where uh, uh, where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you. And we'll move your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our Father, we're thankful for an opportunity to gather uh, this morning and to worship you and to hear from you in, in your word. And we do pray your uh, blessing on our time. And we pray, Lord, that you would open our hearts and our minds and our ears to listen uh, to the text and to uh, the teaching of the text so that we might uh, address our hearts uh, with, with the truth. And that by uh, sitting under the truth, our hearts might change and our love for you would grow. That's our desire this morning. Honor yourself. Elevate the person of Jesus Christ. And, and uh, we want you to have uh, all glory as we have prayed. In Christ's name, amen. Well, on this last Sunday morning of 2023, I've entitled this morning's me- uh, message, Do You Love Me? Do You Love Me? Th- those are the questions that... Uh, Jesus asked uh, Simon Peter at the end of uh, John chapter 21. In fact, he asked him that same question three times. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? And it's a very important question that needs to be asked of all of us and answered properly. Because as I've told you over the years, it's probably not enough to ask a person the question, do you believe in Jesus? Because the reality is the book of James says that even the devil himself believes in Jesus. The question when it comes to the person of Jesus Christ is, do you love him? And every time around, uh, every time around this time of the year, uh, it's somewhat traditional for us to stop and as you look at a new year coming and the last year passed, kind of take inventory of your lives and stop for a moment and look where you've been in the past and kind of reset your focus on where you hope to go in the upcoming year. And and because it's been a number of years since we've done this together as a congregation, I thought it might be helpful uh, to again stop and consider this topic of our love for Christ. And and each of us answer the Lord's question on a personal personal level, do you love me? Ask the Savior. Do you love me? Where am I in my love for Christ? How, how much do I love Christ? Those are the questions that need to be asked. And, and the truth is we need to think deeply about our love for Christ, not just at the beginning of the year, but all the time. We need to stop and think often and deeply and consider our love for him and ask ourselves that question, how much do I love him? How, how am I living my life in relationship to him? Am I sold out completely to him or am I caught up into the trivialities of the, the day, the trivialities of life? Is my life and my agenda, my issues, are, are they more important than Christ? Have all the events and the busyness of the day in which we live, have they crowded out my love for him? Vital questions I think that we should ask ourselves often. Now we speak around here a lot of the demise of the culture. We speak about the culture and people have turned their backs on God and God is a, they've abandoned God and God has returned the favor, if you will, and he's abandoned them. He's turned his back on the on the people of this nation and really around the world who've rejected him and, and allowing them uh, have allowed them to go uh, their own way and, and as a result of that as bad as things are they get worse as a result of living life apart from god life becomes extremely difficult life is full of all kinds of darkness and confusion and hopelessness and sadness and and heartaches 
But at the same time, we've also spoken a lot about the fact that God has left us as the church to be his witnesses in, in this world, to represent him. In this dying culture that has turned its back on God, God has left us in this culture to be about the business of rescuing the perishing. God has left us in this world uh, to encounter the world, to confront it with the reality of the personal God and the message of the gospel. Therefore, I've often over the years reminded us of the fact that we are influence and hope in this culture. We are influence and hope. We are salt and light. And we're to be living in a manner that causes people to stop and ask us the question why we are different, which gives us the opportunity to speak about hope, to speak about God and his goodness, to speak about the person of Jesus Christ, and to speak about the gospel. We're to be living our lives in a visible manner where everyone can see our good works and then uh, out in the open and then uh, praise God. That's what Christ said, Matthew 5, verse 16. He says, let your, shine, your, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. There should be radically something different about our lives, fundamentally different. Now, I would contend that there is a lot of darkness in the world, but the real issue in the world is not the presence of the darkness because that's always been there since the fall. And evil honestly continues to do what evil does. I think, listen, I think the real issue in the world is the absence of light. It's the absence of light. Because just a little bit of light dispels the darkness. And we have the great privilege as being saved individuals to bring that light, to be that light into a dark world, to bring that hope, that help, to a world that desperately sits in darkness and in the shadow of death by its own choice, its own ignorance, and by the activity of Satan himself who's blinded men to the glory of the person of Jesus Christ. We alone are salt and light in this world. We alone have been called by God to represent him positively in this world. And the truth is the world needs you. To be faithful to the call, to be faithful as Christ's ambassadors, ambassadors of hope, ambassadors of the gospel, reflectors of the glories of God, the glories of Christ. The world needs us again to be faithful to the task that God has called us to, to go out into the world, to interact with the world, to be that positive influence that God has designed and ordained the church to be in this world. Now, if we're going to do that and do that effectively, then I think it begins with stopping and asking ourselves a question or stopping and asking ourselves again the question, do I love Christ? How much do I love Christ? Am I growing in my love for Christ? We don't need to spend a lot of time speaking about the reality of his love for us because that's a fixed issue. That's a proven reality. But we do do need to stop and consider our love for him because that's the real issue. That's really what it means to be a Christian. John MacArthur says this, the Christian life is about loving Christ. It's about loving him singularly. It's about loving him totally. It's about loving him sacrificially. It's about loving him obediently. It's about loving him worshipfully. It's about loving him in terms of service. It's really about loving Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be a Christian. It's that you now commit your life to loving him. That's biblical Christianity. Loving the person of Jesus Christ. So again, the question is, do you love him? How much do you love him? Do you love him more now than you did a year ago? And will you love him more tomorrow than you do today? Because that's the very core of what it means to be a Christian. A Christian is somebody who loves the Lord Jesus Christ. Every year about this time, I pick up a book in my study. It's written by an English Puritan minister who lived in the mid-1600s. His name is Thomas Vincent. He wrote a little book called The True Christian's Love for the Unseen Christ. I've told you about that book. I've referenced it. Some books are worth reading. Some books are worth rereading and rereading and rereading. And this is one of those books. Because, again, I think this book really helps to, you to stop and consider, again, deeply the issue of your love for Christ. Because the true Christian wants to love Christ more. Thomas Vincent loved the Lord Jesus Christ. 
And he was concerned about others and their love for Christ. He said this. The life of Christianity consists very much in our love to Christ. Without love to Christ, we're as much uh, without spiritual life as a carcass when the soul is fled from it. Without natural life. Without love to Christ, we may have the name Christian, but we are holy without the nature of Christians. We may have the form of godliness or uh, the form of godliness, but holy without the power of godliness. Give me your heart is the language of God to all people, and give me your love is the language of Christ to all of his followers or to all of his disciples. So again, very simply, to be a Christian means you love the Lord Jesus Christ. In fact, the Lord Jesus Christ said, look, I can condense down the entire uh, Old Testament moral requirements of the law into one saying, the one phrase, Matthew 22, verse 37, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. He said, this is the great and the foremost commandment. That's what God requires. For the genuine believer, God requires that we would love him with our all. Therefore, our love for God should be supreme. It should be comprehensive, total, complete. And it's our love for the Father that leads us to love his dear Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. John 8, verse 42, Jesus said, If God were your Father, you would love me, for I proceeded forth and come from God. So again, a love for Christ is really the test of sonship. Our love for Christ is essential. It's true evidence that one belongs to the person of God, that one has a real relationship with the true and the living God, that one has been born again. I do believe that a lot of times we get caught up in the trap of believing that knowing truths about Jesus or about Christ is the same as knowing Christ. But the reality is truly loving him is much more than just acknowledging a set of facts concerning his person and his being. Knowing the person of Jesus Christ means that we've come to recognize and understand Christ's incarnation, Christ's presence in this world, the reason that he has come, the purpose that he has come. We, to, to know Christ means that we recognize Christ's physical presence in our life. We who have repented and trusted him. To know Christ truly means that we are Cognitive of the fact that we have been changed and transformed because of him. That our lives in him are completely different than they were apart from him. Therefore, that most certainly affects the way we live, the way we think, the way we act, our priorities, etc. and so forth. And if we genuinely love Christ, then our desire should be for him. If we genuinely love Christ, our desire should be for him. Our delight should be in him. All of our hopes, all of our expectations from him. If we genuinely love Christ, all of our thoughts, our time, our energy will be employed in seeking him and serving him more. If we really love Christ, then all, all of our gifts and talents will be his. And we'll be ready to do whatever he requires, even suffer for his namesake if he calls us to that task. For if we have much love for Christ, uh, we would think little of denying ourselves and we would take up our cross and follow him daily wherever he leads us because that's what it means to be a Christian. Thomas Vincent says this, he says that there's a vast difference between true Christians and nominal professors and again, he says it's seen in the relationship to the love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Vincent says this, lovers give themselves unto those whom they love. He says you see that in the marriage relationship, where the husband and wife give themselves into unconditional devotion to each other. <clears throat> this is true also of those who are married or joined to Christ. They give themselves unto him to be wholly his, to be at his disposal, united with him and in communion with him. Again, to say, look, our love for Christ must be supreme. It must be preeminent. We must love Jesus Christ more than anyone. More than we love anyone else. In fact, that's what the Lord Jesus Christ says in Matthew chapter 10, verse 37. He says, he who loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he who loves son or daughter more than me, more than me is not worthy of me. 
And again, it starts with loving Christ and loving Christ preeminent. Loving Christ more than anyone or anybody else. Even those whom we'd most naturally love, that would be members of our own family. Jerome, one of the leaders of the early church, expressed his love for Christ like this. He said, if my father were weeping on his knees before me, my mother hanging on my neck behind me, my brethren, sisters, and kinfolks howling on every side to retain me in the sinful course, I would fling my mother to the ground, run over my father, despise all my kindred, kindred, and tread them under my feet that I might run unto Christ. That's what God is looking for. That's what Christ is looking for. That's what God requires, a radical, unadulterated, unconditional love, a supreme love for the Savior, for the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. And not just that we would love him more than anyone else, but we should have a burning love for the person of Jesus Christ. Luke chapter 24, verse 32, the disciples on the road to Emmaus, they said to one another, were our hearts not burning within us while he was speaking to us on the road and while he was explaining the scriptures to us? I mean, our hearts should be on fire for the person of Jesus Christ, set on fire by the word of the Lord Jesus Christ. And really, no one should be able to ever quench that fire. No temptation, no persecution, no affliction should drown out or overwhelm our love for the person of Jesus Christ. We must have a fully devoted, selfless love for him. Jesus said in Matthew 16, verse 24, If anyone wishes to come after me, let him deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. To take up your cross means to die. Christ is saying, you need to love me more than anything else. You need to love me more than your own hopes, your own dreams, your own ambitions, your own desires. You must love me even more than you love your own life. Again, you must be willing to take up your cross and follow me. Willing to lose your life for me if that's what I call you to do. And not only must our love for Christ be a preeminent, supreme love, not only must we have a burning, fully devoted, selfless love for the person of Jesus Christ, but our love for Christ must control us. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, he says, For the love of Christ controls us, having concluded this, that one died for all, therefore all died. It's an interesting verse, 2 Corinthians 5, verse 14, because while Paul's love for his Lord certainly compelled him the phrase in the context the love of christ is really best seen again in the context as christ's love for paul christ's love for paul is seen most clearly in the sacrificial death substitutionary atonement that christ made on behalf of the apostle paul and he's saying look it's that free magnanimous magnanimous unmerited love of christ for paul that controlled him that changed his entire life that drove him, that motivated him for ministry. Since Christ loved Paul to that extreme, Christ loved him savingly, sacrificially. Paul wanted to be certain that nothing hindered his ability to serve him, to serve Christ. And likewise, the same should be true of us. Christ's love for us must motivate us towards him and activity for him and our love for him. Christ's love for us must motivate our love back to him. John says in 1 John four nineteen, we love because he what? First loved us. Why do we have a relationship with Christ? Because he loved us first. Galatians 2 and 20, I've been crucified with Christ. Paul says there's no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me, uh, the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, here it is, who loved me and gave himself or delivered himself up for me. Romans 5 or 6, while we were still helpless at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. One would hardly die for a righteous man, though perhaps for a good man someone would dare even to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us, and while we were yet sinners, yet Christ died for us. Much more having now been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. It's the love of Christ. Christ's love for us. The love of Christ that controls us. The love of Christ for us motivates us and drives us and controls us and really causes us to do whatever uh, we do. 
And we should have a pure love for Christ. Ephesians 6, 24 says, Grace be with all of you who love the Lord Jesus Christ with a love incorruptible. We should have a pure love, a a never-ceasing, constant love. A love that's never corrupted by any lusts or seductions of the world whatsoever. Peter says, 1 Peter 1, 8, Although you've not seen him, you love him. And you do not see him now, but you believe in him. And you greatly rejoice with joy inexpressible, full of glory. He goes on in 1 Peter, Peter does, goes on in 1 Peter chapter 2, saying that we see Christ and he's the precious one. He's the precious one, the, the precious cornerstone. The living stone that was rejected by men, but precious to us who believe because he's valuable beyond all else. Again, John says in his first letter, 1 John, he says, we have come to know and believe the love of God that he has for us because God is love and the one who who abides in love abides in God. And again, we love because God has set his love on us first. So that's the one thing that defines the Christian. It's his love for Christ. And his love must be preeminent, supreme, burning, fully devoted, selfless, all-controlling, all-consuming, motivating, pure, passionate, a precious love that brings great rejoicing and joy, inexpressible, full of glory. And again, we love Christ because he first loved us. And the love that we're being called to is really a love also that's marked by obedience to Christ as Lord. The Lord Jesus in Luke chapter 6, verse 46, he says, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and do not do what I say? The Lord Jesus John 14, verse 15, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. So love for Christ is to be preeminent, supreme, burning, fully devoted, selfless, all-controlling, all-consuming, motivating, pure, passionate, precious, and it should be obedient. Do you love Christ? Do you love me? Asks the Savior. Because the great reality in the world is there are only two kinds of people in the world. The world likes to divide us up into all kinds of different factions. But the reality is there's only two kinds of people in the world. That's it. Those who love Christ and those who do not love Christ. 1 Corinthians 16 verse 22 says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. Paul says if you don't love Christ, then you're cursed by God. So how much do you love Christ? Because again, biblical Christianity is defined by a life of loving the person of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the truth is, some men have no love for him. Some men have no love for the person of Christ. Therefore, they place themselves in great peril under the judgment of God. Wicked people who blaspheme God, who reject him, who scoff at his reality, who reject his kindness and his mercy. And again, those who are unrighteous are in great peril of everlasting, eternal condemnation and and judgment. Vincent warns, he says this, Consider this all you have no love for Christ. When he comes to judgment, he will tear you to pieces. There will be none to deliver you. If you do not have the sweet fire of love for Christ kindled in your heart, you will be thrown into the dreadful fire of hell, which will burn you everlastingly. Scripture says, kiss the son, lest he be angry and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can, be, his wrath can flare up in a moment, and blessed are those who take refuge in him. So again, those who have no love for Christ are eternally doomed. Currently under the judgment of God. Some men have no love for Christ. Some men have some love for Christ, but not much, very little. I'm going to read to you an extended quote out of that book. It's a long, I admit that, but I think it's worth it. I've tried my best to kind of condense it down. It comes under a heading in that book, How to Test Your Love for Christ. And again, it's Thomas Vincent speaking. He says, is it not evident that you have but little love to Christ when he is but little in your thoughts and meditations? Does not your lack of thoughts of Christ prove your lack of love? Thoughts are the handmaid of love. Where love is strong and ardent, there are many thoughts 
will uh, attending be attending upon it. But will not your heart tell you that your thoughts of Christ are very few? He says, you can think often of your food, but how often do you think, or how often do your thoughts feed on Christ who's the bread of life? You can think often of your clothing and what to wear, but how little do you think of the robes of Christ's righteousness? You can think often of your earthly friends, but how little do you think of Christ who is your friend in heaven? Moreover, he says, does it not argue of little love to Christ that you speak so little of him or for him in your conversations? If you had much love to Christ, would not this love breathe forth more in your conversations? You can readily speak of yourself, which reveals your great self-love. But how little do you commend your Lord and Master and extol his excellencies with your lips? Is this not evidence that you have but little love for him in your hearts? He goes on under that heading and speaks about how much we talk of news and sports and the events of the day, recreation, vacations, etc. and so forth, but we talk so little of Christ. He says, when you leave Christ out of your conversation, it shows that you have not an abundance of love to him, because out of the abundance of the heart, a mouth speaks. And likewise, he says, does not a small amount of zeal which you have for Christ honor the world? Or, uh, likewise, does not the small amount of zeal for which you have for Christ's honor in the world argue that you have but little love to him? Where is your activity for Christ to promote his interests among those relations and friends that you have made acquaintances with? Do you labor all you can to bring others to the way of God and to acquaintance with Christ? If you truly loved Christ, you would. He goes on and speaks about how little time we spend in prayer and little time we spend in Bible reading and devotion. And the fact of the smallness of time in those activities, again, really reflects the smallness of our love for Christ. He says, need I say more to convince you that you have but little love to Christ? Now, Christian, think what a sin, what a shame, what a fault it is that you should have so little love to Jesus Christ. If it is so great a sin for such are strangers unto Christ to have no love at all to him, so that it brings them under the most dreadful curse, surely it cannot be a small sin that you who are his are true disciples should have but little love unto him. And then he goes on and speaks about the fact that little love for Christ is displeasing to the Father, displeasing to the Son. He says, is it not dishonorable to Christ that you should have so little love for him? Is it not to your shame that you should have so little love to Christ, especially when he so much deserves your love? It says, beside the infinite excellencies and perfections that are in his person, does not his infinite kindness unto you call out not only for the truth, but also strengthen your love? Think what he has done for you. Think what he has suffered for you. Think what he has purchased for you. Think what he has promised for you. Think what he has laid out for you. Think what he has laid up for you. And yet to have but little love to Christ and to make such poor returns. Moreover, he says, it is, not, is it not to your own folly to have little love to Christ? Do you not here rob yourselves from the peace that passes all understanding of such sweetness and comfort both in the strength of your love and the sense of his love? Is it not injury and hurt unto yourselves the the consequence of your little love unto Christ? To conclude, he says, if you have but little love to Christ, you will be apt to faint in the day of adversity, to shrink when you're called to take up his cross and suffer for his sake. Lesser sufferings will decompose you. Greater sufferings will frighten and amaze you. And you will be in danger of turning into fearful apostates at the time of great trials. He says there is a need of great love to Jesus Christ as well as great faith to carry you through sufferings with courage that you may persevere unto the end.
That's a pretty challenging set of comments. The Savior asked Peter three times, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? So the question at the beginning of this new year is to ask yourselves, how much do I love the Savior? What is the condition of my love for the person of Jesus Christ? Not what is my knowledge level of theology. What, what is the condition of my love for the person of Jesus Christ? Most men have none. Few have total, complete, unyielding devotion to Christ, but we all should. We should all have a complete, unyielding devotion to the Savior. Now, in the time that we have left, what I want to do is I want to take us back to the, to the beginning, to the scripture I read, because it's all about loving the person of Jesus Christ. Uh, Revelation chapter 2, if you're not there, you need to have your Bible open there, because it really is a corrective to the issue of a lack of love for the Savior. Revelation 2, the first five verses, first seven verses. I, I don't have time to do a full exposition of the, uh, of the verse, but just let me kind of pick out a few points and, and uh, help us cover the topic. As you're turning there, if you just remember in the context, chapter 1 in the book of Revelation is a great vision of the person of Jesus Christ. He's moving in his church. He's empowering his church. He's interceding for and purifying his church. Uh, There's a commanding voice. uh, With a commanding voice, he directs uh, his church. Uh, He's reflecting his glory in and through his church. And Christ in chapter 1 is the center of everything. In fact, the the vision of Christ is so overwhelming. Uh, Verse 17 of chapter 1, John says, When I saw him, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Uh, The one whom whom Jesus loved, as John always referred himself to, as uh, the one whom placed his head on Jesus' bosom there at the last uh, uh, supper. When I saw him, in the reality of who he is, I fell at his feet as a dead man. Now, chapter 2 comes, and after this vision of Christ, we have the Lord Jesus Christ again dictating, dictating letters to seven churches that are listed back in uh, chapter 1. Uh, seven churches, seven actual cities. He, he begins with the Ephesian church. It was the first, the strongest of the churches. Others were basically planted by the Ephesian church. And Christ pins a letter. He writes a letter unique to each of these churches, and to the unique characteristics and situations and problems that we're facing in these churches. Two of the churches have no problems, and he commends them. But five of the churches are seriously flawed. They're tolerating sin in their midst. And again, these are real actual churches. They're kind of the churches on the postal route in the area, if you would. But I think while these are all real literal churches, I think they also represent the kinds of churches that have existed throughout the age of the church, even up to today. So I think uh, they're a model and an example for us, really a warning here in the context uh, for us and to us. So the chapter begins with Christ having something to say to the Ephesian church. And that ought to get everybody's attention in the room, right? Christ speaking directly to your church. Revelation 2, verse 1. To the angel at the church of Ephesus right. Now, angelos is the word angel, means literally messenger. Most likely, I think in the context, it means a key elder, a human leader in the church. The the word can mean a literal angel, but I don't think that works in the context because angels were never leaders in the church. So I really think it's directed to the key elder of this church at Ephesus. He says, write this, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands. Uh, And again, that's speaking about Christ and Christ moving in amongst his church. Verse 2, Christ says, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles, and they are not. You found them to be false, and you have perseverance and have uh, endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary. And that's a pretty good commendation. Now, the reality at the time, just previous to this, that Ephesus is the most important uh, reality of the, the New Testament here. The, Ephesus is the most important city in Asia Minor. The Roman government uh, resided there. The Roman governor resided there. Population is 
perhaps somewhere between 250 to 500,000 people. It was an inland city. It was about three miles from the sea. But there was a river, the Caister River. It had a broad mouth and allowed access and provided a great harbor there for uh, Asia Minor. Four trade routes went through Ephesus. So it was known as the gateway to Asia. And in the center of that city was a temple. It was called the Temple of Artemis or Temple of Diana. Diana is the, the Roman name. And the, the Temple of Diana was a massive building, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, the most prominent landmark in the entire city. And the quote-unquote worship that went on there, the worship of uh, Diana or, or Artemis, was unspeakably vile. Her idol, if you've seen pictures, was a gross, mini-breasted monstrosity that people popularly believed fell from the sky. The temple is attended by scores of eunuchs and slaves thousands of priestesses who are little more than temple prostitutes. Temple grounds are filled with chaotic, a chaotic collection of people and playing musical instruments and bankers and criminals and musicians. Again, people working themselves in kind of a hyster- uh, hysterical, emotional, spiritual frenzy, all kinds of shameful sexual conduct, mutilation going on. And right in the middle of that vile pagan city is this faithful group of believers known as the church at Ephesus. They're a very strong church, a very sound church theologically, a church that is very earnest and zealous, a church that is very evangelistic, outward focused. And they have their beginning, starting in uh, a reference to their beginning back in Acts chapter 19. So put a mark there because we're coming back, but turn over to, turn back to to Acts chapter 19. Acts chapter 19, starting in verse 1. And I can't go through all of it. I can't read all of it, so I'll kind of move along at at points, but you'll get the gist. Acts 19, verse 1. It came about that while Apollos was in Corinth, Paul, having passed through the upper country, came to Ephesus. Drop to verse 8. And he entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. So he's preaching there in this Jewish synagogue, Paul is. Verse 9, but when some of the were becoming hardened and disobedient, speaking evil of the way, that's what the early church was known as, early believers, before the multitude, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily, uh, uh, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. And it took place for two years, so that all who lived in Asia heard the word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. So for two years, Paul is teaching in this lecture hall called Tyrannus. <clears throat> and, and the power of his preaching, the biblical knowledge of his preaching, it is so great that all who are in Asia are hearing the word. Verse 11, And God is performing extraordinary miracles by the hands of Paul, so that handkerchiefs or aprons or even carried from his body to the sick, and diseases left them, and evil spirits went out. Drop down to verse 17. And this became known to all, the supernatural power of Paul. Both Jews and Greeks who lived in Ephesus, and fear fell upon all of them, and all of the name of the Lord Jesus was being uh, magnified. And many also of those who had believed kept coming, confessing, and disclosing their practices. And many of those who practiced magic brought their books, and together began burning them in the sight of all. And they counted up the prices, uh, the price of, of them and found them to be 50,000 pieces of silver. That's a lot, I You know, it's a lot of money, right? Verse 20, so the word of the Lord is continuing to to grow mightily and prevailing. I mean, God is really at work through this faithful minister, uh, Paul, as he's teaching the word of God. The gospel is going forth, and the gospel is beginning to have an effect on this vile city. Verse 23, and about that time there arose no small disturbance concerning the way for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Artemis, <clears throat> was bringing no little business to the craftsmen. So a financial crisis is starting to uh, impend here in the city because the, the, the gospel is negatively affecting the idol-making business. People are hearing the truth. They don't want these idols anymore. They don't want these books. They're, they're throwing them away. They're burning them, this, these lies of the devil. Verse 25 
These he gathered together, uh, Artemis, these he gathered together, the workmen in similar trades, and said, Men, you know that our prosperity depends upon this business. And you see in here that not only in Ephesus, but in almost all of Asia, this Paul is has persuaded and turned away a considerable number of people, saying that gods made with hands are no gods at all. It's amazing. And not only that, verse 27, it says there's a danger that this trade of ours will fall in disrepute. But that also the temple of the great goddess Artemis will be regarded as worthless. <clears throat> and she in whom all of Asia and the world worship should even be dethroned from her magnificence. Verse 28, and when they heard this, they were filled with rage and <clears throat> began crying out, Great is Artemis of the Ephesians. And the city was filled with confusion and they rushed with one accord into the theater, dragging out Gaius and Aristarchus, Paul's traveling companions from Macedonia. Verse 30, when Paul wanted to go to the assembly, the disciples would not let him. So also some of Aristarchus, some of the uh, Essiarchs, who are uh, friends of his, sent him and repeatedly urged him not to venture to the city or to the theater. Verse 32, so then some were shouting one thing and some were another shouting another and the assembly was in confusion and the majority did not know for what cause they'd come together and some of the crowd crowd concluded it was Alexander since uh, the Jews had put him forward and having motioned with his hands, Alexander was intending to make a defense to the assembly. When they recognized that he was a Jew, a single outcry arose from them and they all shouted for about two hours, great is Artemis of the Ephesians. After quieting the multitude, the town clerk said, Men of Ephesus, what man is here that after all does not know that the city of Ephesus is the guarding of the temple of the great Artemis and the image which fell down from heaven? Since then, these are undeniable facts. You ought to keep calm and do not nothing rash. For you brought these men here who are neither robbers or, of temples nor blasphemers of our goddess. So then if Demetrius and the craftsmen who are with him have a complaint against any man, the courts are in session, the proconsuls are available, let them bring charges against one another. But if you want anything beyond this, it shall be settled in a lawful assembly. For indeed we are in danger of being accused of a riot in connection with today's affair, since there is no real cause for it. And this is con- in, in this connection we shall be unable to account for this disorderly uh, uh, gathering. And after saying this, they dismiss the assembly. I mean, a near riot breaks out. The idol-making business in town is suffering, taking a downturn. Everybody's burning their magic books, and everybody's turning to Christ. Uh, the, The whole city is in confusion and in an uproar because the gospel is spreading. The gospel is going forth. It's changing people's hearts. It's changing people's lives. The gospel is going forward and it's confronting the darkness and the darkness doesn't like it. That's this little church at Ephesus. It begins with great power, has a great influence on that city. When Paul left there, he sent Timothy to be the pastor. And they also had Aquila and Priscilla uh, 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 and they had Apollos uh, as teachers. They had a great start, great influence, great leadership. Now go back to Romans, or to to Revelation. Revelation 2. When you come to Revelation chapter 2, what you need to understand, in the context, this is only about 35 or 40 years down the road from this great start. And Christ says again, verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance. Perseverance, hupomone, your steadfastness, your consistency, your endurance. I mean, these guys are workers. They prevailed under the pressure. They kept going under distress and hardship and duress and difficulty. They were loyal even in the midst of great trials, even in the midst of suffering. I mean, it's a great group of people. I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, and that you cannot endure evil men. I mean, they're very sensitive to sin. They had a low tolerance for sin, a low tolerance for sinners. Look at verse 6. He says, you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, uh, Nicolaitans in, in which I also hate. Uh, the Nicolaitans were a group of people or a sect of people, early so-called Christians who were given over to immorality and lewdness and licentious activity. And, and they hated them because of that. They, they didn't tolerate sin or immorality. 
Again, verse 2, I know your deeds, your toil, your perseverance, that you cannot endure evil men. You put to test those who call themselves apostles. They are not. You found them to be false. I mean, they're a church that sound doctrinally. They evaluated everybody in light of the truth. They, they had discernment. They rejected those who didn't line up. I mean, who wouldn't want to be a part of a church like that? Churches making an impact on the city. Uh, scores of people are coming to Christ. Uh, a church that actually works. Uh, a church is not just sitting around, but they're involved. They're, they, they persevere under pressure. They just keep going under distress and hardship. A church that can't tolerate, can't tolerate sin. A church that is discerning, doctrinally sound. They hold, they hold truth on high. Verse 3. When you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake, have not grown weary. I mean, they're, they're not yielding to any kind of discouragement, ingratitude, unthankfulness. They're just faithful to the Lord, faithful to the work of the Lord, to do what God has called them to do. At first look, it seems to be an outstanding church, a great church, seemingly a perfect church because everything is going well here. Again, who wouldn't want to be a part of this kind of fellowship? All of this commendation coming from Christ himself until you get to verse 4. But. But I have this against you that you have left your first love. That's a stinging rebuke. As great as they are, they have a fatal flaw. I mean, they work hard, they toil, they're faithful, stand up under the pressure, can't endure evil men, they hate sin, sound in doctrine, they're discerning, put to test those who call themselves apostles and they're not. A powerful, evangelistic, church making an impact on the city but they have a fatal flaw says the lord of the church you have left your first love you do not love me as you should love me they may have been faithful to a certain extent, but what did they do out of duty versus what did they do out of love? Their passion was gone. Their hearts had grown cold. Their love for Christ had waned. I have this against you. You have left your first love. Terrible words to hear from the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Despite all of your wonderful activities, in spite of all the wonderful possibilities and strength and power of your beginning, you've reached a point where you no longer love me like you should. We are 35 to 40 years down the road. I mean, what tragic words for any church to hear. The Lord of the church is saying, I have this against you. You don't love me like you should love me. You've left your first love. Again, the Lord asks the question, do you love me? It's always easy in the Bible when we're looking at the characters of the Bible and the Lord's rebuking somebody or challenging somebody. Oh, Peter, you know, he's always messing up. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? It's different when the question is turned around and the Savior asks us, do you love me? D.A. Carson writes this to the church at Ephesus. He says, They still proclaim the truth, but no longer passionately love him who is the truth. They still perform good deeds, but no longer out of love, brotherhood, and, and compassion. They persevere, or preserve the truth as, and witness uh, courageously, but forget that love is the greatest witness to truth. It's not so much that their genuine uh, virtues have squeezed love out, but no amount of good works, wisdom, discernment in matters of church discipline, patient endurance and hardship, hatred for sin, or dis- discipline doctrine can ever make up for lovelessness. Again, the Lord Jesus Christ asks, do you love me? Steve Lawson interjects. He says, as in any relationship, our love for Christ is subject to fluctuation. 
While this relationship can never be broken, it can suffer a severe waning of intensity. Sometimes our passion for Christ explodes and grows, and other times it grows stale. It can become stagnant, mechanical, routine, and we begin to simply go through the empty motions of Christianity without a blazing, fiery love for Him. He says, sadly, that is precisely what took place at Ephesus. The church there was a great church. They believed correctly. They served exhaustively. They defended valiantly. But something over time was missing. That which was missing is that they had left their first love. They had not left it in total, for such is impossible, for nothing shall separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, as it says in Romans 8. But they left it in part. Once on fire for Christ, their blazing passion had cooled off to a flickering. Oh, they're still coming, they're serving, they're believing rightly, but their hearts are no longer an altar on which the fire of Christ was burning brightly. Their activities for Christ had begun to suppress their intimacy with Christ. And rather than it being a relationship, their Christianity had become a performance. They had full heads, busy feet, and cool hearts. The glow was gone. He asked, where are you? Where are you? Because sometimes the more involved we become in serving the Lord, there can be a sacrifice in our personal communion and fellowship with the Lord. Is your passion for Christ dynamic? Or has your love faded? Again, the Lord Jesus asks of us all, do you love me? I think that statement by Lawson is compelling. He says, sometimes the more involved we become in serving the Lord, there can be a sacrifice in our personal commitment with and fellowship with the Lord. He asks, is your passion for Christ dynamic or has your love faded? And the truth is, to the extent of your love for Christ goes your life. The, the extent of your love for Christ really goes your life, the direction of your life. And not only is it the direction of your life, but it goes so, your love for Christ also so goes the direction of this church, this fellowship. I mean, we can have a love for truth, we can preach sound doctrine, we can hate sin, we can uphold holiness, we can be evangelistic in our outreach, but the moment we lose our love for Christ, we are in great trouble. The moment our love for Christ becomes anything less than preeminent, supreme, burning, fully devoted, selfless, all-controlling, all-consuming, motivating, pure, passionate, uh, precise, or precious, and, and obedient, then we've broken the heart of the Savior. Because again, the most basic definition of the Christian life is it's a life lived in absolute devotion and love to the person of Jesus Christ, a love for Christ. Again, faith without love to Christ is dead faith. Give me your heart is the language of God to all people. Give me your love is the language of Christ to his disciples. The Christian life is about loving Christ, loving him singularly, totally, sacrificially, obediently, worshipfully, in terms of service. And that's what it means to be a Christian. You commit your life to loving the person of the Lord Jesus Christ because Christ wants your heart. He wants your heart. He wants your love. He wants all of them. Again, the church at Ephesus had everything, but they were going to lose their ministry because they lost their love for Christ. And again, the truth is, when you lose your love for Christ, it's really over. The effectiveness of your ministry, anyway. At the end of verse 5, Christ says this. He says, I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place lampstand just a light showing right it's they're really talking about their ministry christ says i'm going to come and shut you down you're never longer going to have a testimony and the reality is if you know anything about that area it's the reality it's a, exactly what happened historically the church of ephesus they're gone they're no longer there i think i have heard i think i've told you this i've heard a little group is trying to start another christian church in that area but the reality is most of that area is now 99 percent muslim 
Most of Europe and the great revival nations, mostly Muslim. The United States, mostly pagan. Because Christ's people have lost their love for the Savior. And the truth is, to leave your first love is really to have a spiritual cancer. And that spiritual cancer grew in the heart of the Ephesian church until God, through Christ, actually brought judgment and that church died. We don't want to see that happen here, do we? So what do you do? What do you do when you find yourself in this kind of condition, when you find your love for Christ growing cold? What do you do if you don't love Christ as you know you should? The text has the answer, verse 5. Verse 5, remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first. Or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Remember from where you have fallen. What Christ says to the church. The church there at Ephesus, he's saying, remember what it was like before you were saved. Remember how it was when you were lost in paganism. Remember how when you were part of the city and you were caught up in all this idolatry, this idol worship, all the perversion, all the immorality that was going on there at the temple. And then remember what it was like when the Lord started to work in your life. Remember how God changed your life. Remember how... God changed everyone here in this assembly at at Ephesus. You who believed and you came together. Remember how the gospel transformed and changed your life. Remember how the gospel was powerfully transforming and changing the lives, opening the hearts of people who believed and, and listened to the truth and repented just like you did in the entire city. Remember how Christ came and everything was changed. And again, Christ would say the very same thing to us this morning. When you find your love for Christ growing cold, you need to remember. Remember, therefore, from where you've fallen. You and me in this room, listening on the internet, we need to remember what it was like before conversion. Remember what it was like before we were saved. Remember what it was like at the beginning when you were first convicted of your sin, when you were first awakened out of spiritual darkness, spiritual slumber. Remember how it was when you first realized you needed Christ. Remember how it was when you first realized you needed Christ, you were lost, and you were in a whole lot of trouble before Holy God. Remember when you came to the realization that Jesus Christ was your only hope, only Jesus Christ could save you. Again, remember what it was like when you came to a knowledge of, the, of your sin and, and, and fear of the wrath of a holy God towards that sin in your life, towards you in your life. Remember, uh, again, the relief you experienced when to Christ you fled for refuge. Remember the peace and the joy that overwhelmed your heart, knowing you were forgiven. Remember what it was like when you were first saved and you couldn't get enough Bible in you. When you'd take your Bible and sit down and read for hours and hours and hours and then you still couldn't get enough. Remember how it was when you first came into have true Christian fellowship with other believers and you used to long to be with Christ's people, with God's people. Remember how you were so excited to be around them uh, with people like you who love the Lord and you wanted to be from people who lived their life in, in perversion and against the Savior. Remember what it was like to be with Christ when you were so excited about your new life in Christ and you wanted to honor him and glorify him and, and you just wanted to be with him and you'd spend just long hours of time talking with him, walking with him, uh, taking a drive, praying. Remember at the beginning when you're so excited about him, he is the object of your voice. Everything that came out of you was about him. You're always talking about him, always thinking about him. You're so excited to be in his presence. You wanted to serve him. You loved him because he changed your life and forgave your sin. 
So the Savior says, when your love for him grows cold, you need to stop and remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The word fallen speaks to the issue of sin. Because to leave our first love really is sin. And then Christ says what we need to do next is we need to repent. In fact, he says it twice in verse 5. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen, repent and do the deeds that you did at first, or else I am coming to you. I'm coming in judgment. And I will remove your lampstand, your influence, out of its place unless you repent. Metanoia, repent. You need, to, you need to change your mind. You need to change the direction of your life. Turn from sin back to God. Genuine repentance knows the evil of sin must be forsaken and the person and the work of, of uh, the person of Jesus Christ totally, singularly embraced. And when you lose your love for Christ, you have to repent. You have to confess your sin. Confess the reality of the lack of your love for Christ. He knows it anyway. Confess your cold heart. Confess your sin of leaving your first love. Confess your sin of not being thankful. Confess your sin of failing to love God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. Confess your sin of spiritual apathy and spiritual indifference to Christ and to others in the body of Christ. Confess your sin of compromise with the evil of this world that has led your heart away from a heart fully devoted to him. So what do you do when you find your love for Christ growing cold? You, you, one, you remember. Two, you repent. And then three, you act. Look what it says there. You remember, you repent, then you act. You go back and repeat. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen and repent. And here it is. And do the deeds you did at first. Do the deeds you did at first. You go back. You remember, you repent, confess your sin, and you go back and do the deeds you did at first. You go back when you were first saved. You go back to the time when you were caught up in Bible study and fellowship and prayer and meditating on Christ and his word. You go back to when you're so excited to be with God and so excited to be with his people uh, to a time where you spoke of Christ often. You enjoyed him. You enjoyed witnessing for him. You enjoyed worshiping him. You go back to when there was a time of joy and excitement and you remember what it was like when you were first transformed and you began to do again those things you did at first when you were caught up in the joy of your salvation. Confess your sin, you repent, you go back, you do it the right way, you change. And with great intentionality of purpose, you pursue Christ. With great intentionality of purpose, you pursue Christ in prayer, in his word, with God's people. Uh, you become intentional. You, pl- you, you, you plan to set aside time to pursue him. You, you change your schedule so you can pursue him. You get up earlier, stay up later, so that you can pursue him in his word, prayer, fellowship. You recapture the richness of the life that you had originally when you were devoted to Christ and a life dedicated that had a preeminent love for Christ. Because that's a Christian. He's one who loves the Savior. Now, sadly, again, the Ephesian church never did that. They never took the steps to recover. They lost their influence. They lost their ministry. Christ removed their lamp, their light, their, their, light, their lampstand. Again, it's not, the whole place is Muslim. The whole area. They didn't lose their salvation, but they lost their ministry and they lost their influence for Christ. The Savior asked you this morning, do you love me? How much do you love me? Because to the extent of your love for the person of Jesus Christ, so goes your life. So goes to the direction of this fellowship. Do you love him this morning more than you did a year ago? 
And the more important question is, do you, will you love him more tomorrow than you do today? If you have an active, dynamic, real relationship with the living God, you should. Because when people lose their love for Christ, when a church loses its love for Christ, people in the fellowship begin to die spiritually. A love for doctrinal truth is not enough. Outward service, activity is not enough. Hating sin is not enough. Christ wants your heart. When we stop making Christ our central focus, we will descend into compromise with the world. And it will be a rapid trip from compromise to corruption. And the whole idea of loving Christ will continue to grow colder and colder. And we'll find ourselves like the church of Ephesus under God's judgment, having lost our influence, our testimony. Not tomorrow, but today. Today activity should be done today. Today I pray for us as a congregation, we would all stop and prayerfully take personal inventory of where we are on our love for Christ. Don't do it tomorrow. Calendar is irrelevant. Do it today. And if you find that your love for the person of Jesus Christ has gone cold, then you need to repent. Call out to God. Ask him to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. Realize that if you're actively involved in ministry in this fellowship, I speak to myself as much as I speak to you. God doesn't need you. God doesn't need me. He can make the rocks cry out and glorify himself. If we serve in ministry, it's a mercy. Christ doesn't need our activity. He wants our heart. He wants us to love him supremely, preeminently. If your love for Christ has grown cold, repent. Go back. Ask God to restore unto you the joy of your salvation. Remember. Remember what it's like. Go back and repeat those things that you did when your love for Christ was new. Because a genuine love for the Savior should be an active, dynamic relationship. It shouldn't decline. It should increase. You should be able to confidently say, Lord willing, I'm going to love him even more tomorrow than I do today and even more the next day because he is the most important person in my life. May our love for Christ grow. Our Father and our God, we thank you for your word, and we thank you for the challenge here of this portion of Scripture, but really also not the challenge, but the encouragement that you're a God who graciously forgives sin. If men would come and repent, you promised to restore. May this time, as we close out this year, kind of cause us all to stop and examine our own hearts not our activity but our hearts may your word the truth act as a warning to help fan fan the flame of our love and passion for the savior help our love each and every day for you grow warmer and warmer not colder and colder may we be a people always lost lost in the wonder and love and praise of you, our God, in Christ. May our love for you grow deeper and deeper. Help us to never leave our first love. And if we have, help us to respond appropriately. I pray in Christ's name. Amen.